May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Don't be afraid, the angel says. Don't be afraid. But Mary isn't afraid. Perplexed, sure. Bewildered, definitely. But she isn't afraid. But shouldn't she be? I mean, Zechariah, just a few verses before in Scripture, a few months in time, stands terrified before Gabriel's presence in the sanctuary, the place where these sorts of things are supposed to happen. Zechariah receives a similar, though admittedly very different, promise of progeny, and he can't believe it. But Mary, well, there's something about Mary. There's something unexpected about Mary. Now, last week, we approached the throne of God to hear the wild good news made possible and manifest for Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we did so without the benefit of hearing their story year after year after year, even though they bring into the world the central Advent character of John the Baptist, the one who stands between the already and the not yet, but we don't read their story every year. We can go a long time without hearing about Zechariah and Elizabeth, but Mary, this story, Mary's story, we know this story. Even those outside the church, those who have never darkened the doors of the sanctuary, they know there's something about Mary. But what do we know? Luke gives us lots of details about Zechariah and Elizabeth. We get their whole holy resume. They're from the priestly line of Abijah. They can trace their family's roots all the way back to the days of Aaron and Moses. Scripture says that they're blameless and righteous before God. We know that they live in Jerusalem, the holy city, where all the moving and shaking happens. We know that they are childless, and yet they hold fast to their religious responsibilities and convictions. But Mary? We know Mary's story, but we don't know much about her. In fact, we only learn three things about Mary from Scripture. Anything else we know about Mary comes from Hallmark or or movies or books, but the Bible only tells us three things. She's young, she lives in Nazareth, and she isn't married. That's it. That is all we know about Mary. Luke does not give us her holy resume. We don't read about how she's holy and blameless and righteous. She does not come from a special family. She has no status in the world whatsoever. And then Gabriel shows up and says, Hello, highly favored. What of her life could earn her such a distinction? I mean, has she been in the temple day and night praying to the Lord? Has she fasted and held fast the laws of Israel? Has she given money? every single month to the love offering at her local congregation. We have no idea. The only things we know about Mary is that she is young, she lives in Nazareth, and she isn't married. But when it comes to the church, we tend to praise Mary. We elevate Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, they say in a church on the other side of town. We lift her up as this paradigm, this virtue of faith. Be like Mary. And and we probably should do this. I mean, Gabriel gives her this inexplicable and impossible promise, and she says, sure. In short time, she will birth the incarnate God into the world. She will raise Jesus in the way of God's people. She will become one of his first disciples. 
She will encourage him and kind of make fun of him a little bit at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. She will be one of the only remaining disciples when the cross is on the horizon. But as of this point in the scripture, there is nothing special about Mary. She has God's favor, whatever that means. But what's so compelling about Mary is that she is ordinary. She is ordinary. There's nothing special. And I think the real lesson for us is that she is ordinary and God picks her anyway. God picks Mary anyway. God has no shame, apparently. I mean, wouldn't we expect God, the author of the cosmos, to pick a better suited woman to bear God into the world? Maybe the daughter of Herod, someone who is in a place of power? Surely there she would have more influence over the kind of life that the Messiah would have. Or for that matter, why bother showing up as a baby in the first place? I mean, wouldn't it have been easier for God to just take some dirt, breathe the Holy Spirit into it, and make a fully-fledged human being like God does with Adam in Genesis? Why? Why does God choose Mary? Why does God choose this way to dwell among us? There is no shame in the Advent story. God picks an unwed woman for the delivery of the incarnation. God has no shame. I mean, think, God, with literally all options at God's disposal, chooses this person and this way to continue the work of salvation. God takes on our shame shamelessly. Consider how this baby born to Mary will grow to be Jesus, how he will spend his adult life with the most awful people in, of humanity, that he will count himself at ease to be numbered among sinners and outcasts, the last, the least, the lost, and the little. You know, Mary falls into every one of those categories. When people see her walking around with a swollen belly when she's not married, they will call her a sinner. She will be outcast by her community, have to go live with her relative while she's pregnant. She is among the last, the least, the lost, and the little. She has no privilege, no power, no status, no hope, and God picks her anyway. Which means, if you happen to be someone who's been pushed around left to your own devices, silenced by the insensitivity or the cruelty of other people, if you've ever been told that you don't count because you're not at the top or you're not at the center, then Mary's story is a story for you because it's a story about you. It's been six months. Six months since Gabriel showed up in Jerusalem to talk to Zechariah. Six months of Elizabeth's barren belly growing larger. Six months of Zechariah's silence. Remember, he cannot speak until John the Baptist arrives. And now the angel has another town to visit and another promise to make. God sends Gabriel to Nazareth in provincial Galilee. I have heard this story for 35 years. I've preached this story for 10. And I realized this week for the very first time, I thought, does Nazareth ever show up anywhere else in the Bible? I mean, do we ever read about Nazareth in the Old Testament? Is it a famous city? Did any prophet ever go to Nazareth? And I looked it up this week. Again, I'm a little embarrassed after 10 years that I finally figured this out for the first time. This is the very first time Nazareth ever appears in the Bible. It is not a special place. 
No one has ever hailed from Nazareth until now it is famous because he's Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? But by the time Mary's in Nazareth, it's not even on the map. And God says, that's where it's going to start. The place no one's ever heard of with a woman no one's ever heard of, but a woman who in time will become more important than any woman in history. Greetings, favored one, Gabriel says. The Lord is with you, Mary, again. She's not afraid. She's perplexed. She's confused. She's confounded. Maybe she's afraid because an angel is a strange sight to behold. But perhaps she is confused because she knows that she's nobody. I mean, why would an angel appear to her? What about her life shows any divine favor She's confused, but the angel keeps going, calls her by name, Mary, you are going to conceive in your room a son, bear a son, you'll name him Jesus. He's going to be great. Son of the Most High, the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David. One day a guy named Handel will write a whole big musical about it, and he'll say, and he shall reign forever and ever. Not yet, but soon. Mary says, how can this be? I'm not married. Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Your child will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. Consider, you have a relative named Elizabeth. Even in her old age, she has conceived a son. She was not supposed to be able to have children, but she will very soon. Nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary says, no way. Can't believe it. It's not going to happen. Now, that's what Zechariah said last week. Mary says, okay, let it be with me according to your word. There is a peace about Mary's countenance in this story. Yes, she's confused, but there's peace in her response today. Earlier, the Anderson family lit the peace candle on our Advent wreath. The light of the peace candle, it shines to remind us of the peace that we pray for, the peace made possible in Jesus, the peace of Mary's response. I don't know about you, but I think the world could do to have a little more peace these days. Peace in the Middle East. Peace here in Roanoke. Peace in our own lives. You know, more often than not, peace comes from outside of us. It's an external word. Peace comes from a friend who offers us grace when we don't deserve it, even from an enemy who presents forgiveness instead of judgment. Peace, if it ever comes to us, it comes like a gift. It comes from outside of us. The one born to Mary will embody a peaceful way of being that transcends everything we think we know because Jesus takes us from where we are to where we can be. Mary, in receiving this visit from Gabriel and hearing the promise, she goes from nobody to somebody. In an instant, she becomes blessed, fortunate, and given a job to do in the story of salvation. Even in her ordinariness, her youth, her singleness, perhaps even in her embarrassment, she is called by God anyway, singled out to bear the Savior of the world into the world. Church historians often call Mary the first disciple. Before Jesus ever calls Peter, before he calls Andrew, before James and John, Mary is the first disciple. 
She is the first one called by God to take part in the good newsing of the world. She is the first. When Gabriel says this promise, she responds by saying, Let thy will be done. Mary prays that prayer long before her son ever does. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Not what I want, but what you want. Let thy will be done. Mary prays the prayer first. Maybe Jesus learned it from her. Let thy will be done. Mary doesn't say, I'll do my best, or I am the woman for the job. She knows that whatever happens can only be possible because of the impossible possibility of God. She, again, hail Mary, full of grace. She is full of grace because God's grace is working in her and through her and with her. So what will happen next? Wonderfully, Scripture tells us we have two more Sundays to go. What will happen next? But now, for right now, I think it's enough to know that the little we know about Mary is about to become everything. This young, unmarried woman will very soon be visibly pregnant for everyone to see. On some level, she has to know that people are going to talk. People are going to wonder. People are going to whisper. She has to know. She has to know that her fiancé will wonder what in the world is going on. And yet, when Gabriel shows up, she says, I don't know what this means, but I'm willing to trust God and see where this goes. In short, Mary has faith. This is the beginning of her adventure. The adventure of trusting God to do what God says God will do. Maybe therein lies the good news for all of us today. We don't need the perfect holy resume. We don't have to come from the right family. We don't have to have the right job or the right amount of money in our bank account. Lowly as we are, no matter what, God chooses us anyway. How unexpected. Maybe that's why God says, read this story year after year after year, not just to know what happened, but to wonder what happens next. And not just to Mary and to Jesus and to Joseph, but to all of us. We are now the characters of God's story of salvation for the world. It's still being written for us and with us. Because most of us here, we are unknown to the world. We're living in a place that is certainly nice, but our neighborhood is not that prestigious or prominent. We come from Roanoke, not Salem. <laughs> you know, to none of us has been given the power to rule the world. And yet God says, rejoice. Rejoice. You're just the sort of person I'm looking for. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, whether you're put together or falling apart at the seams, because all you need to do is receive the gift I have to offer you. Take my peace and my love and my grace, and it can change everything. Do you believe it? And do you believe that God loves you? When you look in the mirror and you think about everything you've done, all the things you've left undone, do you believe that God loves you does it seem or sound impossible? It should. God's love for you, for me, should seem and sound impossible. But you know what the best part of the good news is? Nothing is impossible for God.
And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.